Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day and this opportunity to come again into your house as your family, to sit at your table and feast upon your word. We thank you that you've given us brothers and sisters here, mothers and fathers here, um, to live as a family and to um, endure and persevere with hope until the coming of that day when you, our great God and Father, will spread a banquet before us and we shall eat with our elder brother, our Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord, united finally and perfectly by your Spirit in your kingdom where there's only glory and righteousness and love. We long for that day and we long to be your family a little bit more perfectly until that day comes. And so we pray, would you minister to us this morning by your word? Would you speak to us? Would you give us grace? Would you encourage us and help us in our various situations so that we might bring you glory and live in the joy of your salvation? Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1979. I was still a baseball fan. And that year, I was a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Back in that day, they had a guy named Pop Willie Stargell. Willie Stargell was a great ball player. And uh, that year, the Pirates had an anthem. Anybody know what that anthem was? There you go. Somebody know. I hear it sort of quietly there. Sister Sledge. We are family. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got all my sisters and me. Uh, uh. Uh, Tommy, we are family. <laughs> yeah, get up everybody and sing, right? And so that was kind of their anthem, kind of like the Nationals a couple years ago with Baby Shark. You know, that, that song just kind of defined their season and defined their team. And it was fun for me. I was the youngest of eight kids, and most of my siblings were still at home. And so whenever that Sister Sledge song came on, we'd get up and dance around and, and have a good time. I have, I have sweet sort of warm feelings now just thinking about it. As much as the 1979 Pirates were family, God's church is meant to be family, even more so, right? But family is a complex concept, isn't it, right? Families are structured differently. You know, some have a mom and dad at home who are married. Some have a mom and dad at home who are not married. Some have just a mom at home. Some have just a dad at home. Uh, we've gotten so loose with the notions of a family, some have two dads or two moms at home. This sermon ain't about that, but it just gives an illustration of how changing the notion of family has become, right? And family's complex because it's hard to maintain. It's the most basic building block in society, and yet it's a block that sometimes crumbles in our hands. Sometimes it has long seasons of strength and endurance, and other times it's battered and bruised, and estranged. So, you know, for some of us, the notion of family is warm and inviting. We think Thanksgiving, right around the corner, we're going to go home, and mom's going to make turkey, and, and, and dad's going to carve it, or we're going to play football out in the yard with our, our cousins, and, and it's all sort of happy memories. But for some of us, when we say family, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. We've not spoken to mom or dad for we don't know how long. When we do speak with mom or dad, it's conflict and tension and hurt feelings and, and the same argument again 20 years later. So I realized that saying that the church should be the family of God might not be something that all of us intuitively understand in the same way. It might not be something that all of us even are, are attracted to, given what's happening in our families and, and given what we've experienced or seen. But this is why we praise God for his word, isn't it? Because his word helps us to think not just from our experience, but from God's wisdom, right? And so we don't want to sort of think about who we are as a church from our experience up to theological positions. We want to think from God's word down to our experience and have the word reshape us wherever it's needed. Now, we've landed in chapter five of 1 Timothy. Um, you'll remember the sort of 
path that we've taken thus far. First Timothy chapter one, um, verse three, Paul says, and when I was going to Macedonia, I left you there to um, charge persons not to teach any other different doctrine. So right off the bat, Paul is saying, Timothy, part of your mission there is to stop the false teaching. Then it comes to chapter two, and he begins to talk a little bit about the church when it gathers. And he says, basically there, I want men lifting up hands in prayer not arguing and fighting. And I want women adorned with modesty and self-control, also being uh, people of respect and prayer. We come to chapter three, and he says, this is the kind of people you're to look for to lead the church. These are the qualifications for elders and deacons. And praise God, this past Thursday night, we had the privilege of nominating to you uh, a brother to serve us as deacon of men's ministry, our brother Durst Johnson. Praise God. We as pastors believe he meets those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, but we have some doubt since he's now wearing a Redskins jersey. Uh, (laughs) So qualifications in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, he begins to address Timothy about Timothy's own ministry, right? And if we're just sort of picking out highlights from chapter 4, he says, basically, pursue godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And then he tells him what he's to do in his personal ministry and his public ministry and his private ministry, all of which is about devoting himself to the word. Now we come to chapter five, and he's addressing Timothy not just about his own sort of personal and public ministry, what he's to do as a pastor in the ministry of the word. Now in chapter five, he's going to tell Timothy how he is to treat the family of God. He's going to talk about different groups of people older men, older women, younger men, younger women, widows, young widows, older widows, etc. So he's going to walk through this chapter, and, and the key thing hanging over this chapter might be the word honor. The various ways in the family of God we're meant to honor each other. Now, that word isn't used in our text this morning, verses 1 and 2, but as we get into it, I think you'll see that, that it is there implicitly, and it's stated explicitly later. And so in chapter 5, 1 and 2, um, we basically are going to think about how it is as the family of God, the household of God, we are meant to treat each other. We're meant to relate to each other. So look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes there, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This, Timothy, is how you as a pastor and how we as members of God's household are to treat one another. Now, maybe the way to begin in thinking about these these two verses before we get into the the instructions for men and women is to sort of step back for a moment and, and make some general observations. Four quick general observations. Number one, the gospel creates a family. It's not just that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us individually. It brings us into a family. It brings us into a household. It brings us into God's household. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, and the Father is punishing him in our place because of our sins, and when Jesus dies and is buried three days and is resurrected from the grave three days later, in all of that, he was not only saving us personally, but he was constructing with us a family. This is why if you put your faith in Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, and not only does God declare you righteous, but you are also adopted. You are adopted into the family of God as a son or daughter of God, and you are given an inheritance in the kingdom of God. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, when we say, hey, you really ought to become a Christian, We're doing more than sort of saying that we don't approve of your life or some way. That's not what it's about at all. We're inviting you into God's family. We're inviting you into a relationship with God in which God himself, through his son, 
washes your sins away, makes you righteous, dresses you in his own robes as his son or daughter, puts the family signet ring on your finger so that you have the family crest and sits you at his table for family dinner. The gospel creates a family, and we want you to be a part of that family. And it's easy. It's not like you buy your way into this family. It's not like there are uh, 10 paths you got to travel to get into this family. God has made it so easy. His son has done all the work. His son obeyed the law perfectly so that his righteousness would be ours. And then his son died in our place so that the, the wrath that we deserve would be poured out on him and not on us. And now all God calls us to do is to confess our sins, turn away from them, and put our faith in Jesus as we follow him as Lord and Savior. And then your family, with God and with all of his people. We saw an illustration of that this morning, didn't we? All right, so we got a family here from Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Most of us have probably never even been to Phoenix and, and don't go in the summer, right? They're family worshiping with us. And, and right next to them are three brothers from East Austin, Texas, right? Mexican-American brothers, two of them, and a white brother. And, and so we're family now, right? Different, different walks of life, different places. And Derek, you're from California? All the way out on the left coast, right? Family. Why are we assembled together? We, we, we don't otherwise have anything in common except the same Savior and the same God as our Father. And now we can travel east to west in this country and actually all over the globe and find brothers and sisters in the Lord. So Bimi and Tunde sit over there from Nigeria, right? Taco, Cameroon, right? I know there's some Yachties in here, some Jamaicans, Glenn over there, his family from the islands. It's all over the globe, one family because of this one Savior. So the first thing to see is we're using family language in verses one and two because the gospel creates a family. That's what God has wanted for himself. Now, the second thing to see here is that the, the family of God, the church of God, should normally have men and women across the age span. So a healthy, normal family, right, is going to have both genders represented, and it's going to sort of have people of different ages. So it should look a little bit funny to us if we go into a church and everybody's there is the same age, right? There's a church for 20-somethings or a church for 70-somethings, right? That should look a little funny to us if we understand that the church is a family. Right, or we, it should really look funny if we go into a church, uh, as is almost the case sometimes, and everybody in there is the same gender. You go to a church and it's all women. Where are the brothers at? Or if you go to a church and it's all men, it's like, no, actually, that's not quite what God has been making for Himself in a family. So we're going to see men and women, older and younger, in this text. And here's the other thing I think is. Uh, I inferred at least from verses one and two, when Paul sort of names very specifically older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Now, if you are young and a Christian, say 14 years old, and you are older and a Christian, I'll let you fill in the blank on older, you should be seen in the church. You should be recognized in the church. So, so the family of God is not a place where children are, you know, to be seen or not heard or to go outside and play. That's, that was the parenting strategy when I was growing up. Often my mom was like, just grown folk, go outside and play, right? It's not that kind of place. So it's not the kind of place where older people are meant to be set on a shelf somewhere and um, just sort of left in a corner with other older people and have no purpose in the family of God. That's wrong that a healthy pastoral ministry and a healthy church context sees and recognizes and affirms and respects and values the old and the young alike, right? Here's the, here's the fourth and final observation, general observation, that in a healthy family, in a healthy church, we treat people differently based on their age and gender, right? Now, when I say differently, I don't mean unequally. I just mean particularly, 
Now, there are things that we should afford older people that we don't quite afford younger people in the same way. So I'm not likely to walk up on Joshua Washington and say, hey, Mr. Joshua. I might as an encouragement or some such thing, but I should never walk up to Mr. John Cawley and say, hey, John, I'm 52. He's still Mr. Cawley. He's going to always be Mr. Cawley. Right? And I realize that even in a church with this kind of diversity, there, there can be some, some cultural differences here. Right? I remember when I was pastoring in the Cayman Islands, a, a young woman from the UK named Ronnie, she must have been in her early 30s about that time. Uh, she came to faith in the church. I have an atheist background. And uh, this church is full of, of Caribbean folk. And um, one thing about Caribbean folk is it's still a, a, an honor culture. There's a lot of respect in the culture. But Ronnie just used to call me Thabiti. And uh, she didn't think nothing of it. She'd come up and she'd call me Thabiti, call me Thabiti. She was there for about two years. And one day she came and she said, can I ask you something? I said, what's that? She says, I noticed I'm the only one who calls you Thabiti. Everybody else calls you Pastor T. Am I sinning? <laughs> said, no, no, you're not sinning, right? But you're probably getting some hard looks from the older Jamaican members, right? Like, that's the pastor. You show honor, you show respect, Right. Um, and so there's, there's differences in how we treat one another, and Paul is going to flesh that out uh, just a little bit here in verses 1 to 2. So those four things as sort of uh, context uh, for these verses. The gospel creates a family. The church should normally have men and women across the age span. Uh, number three, that it should be, the church, if it's healthy, it should be a place where everybody feels seen, right? And number four, um, there are some differences in how we disciple one another, how we treat one another based upon age. Amen? All right, so let's walk through this text, taking each of those demographic groups and talking about what we're told here. So the first thing uh, the Bible tells us in, in verse 5 is, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So he talks about older men here, of course, and he gives us two instructions. On the first hand, do not rebuke an older man. Now, you may have a translation that brings out the connotation a little bit better, where it says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, right? So the idea here is that it's not that older men don't need any correction. Yes, they do. Yes, we do, right? Uh, and, and part of the pastoral ministry sometimes involves correction or rebuke. But correction is like cough syrup. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of bitter to the taste. It's not something you just like drink and are happy about. Sometimes you got to mix it with a little something, right? And here, what Paul is saying is in, with correction to older persons, mix it with gentleness, right? The pastor is not, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3, he's not to be a, a violent man. He's not to be argumentative. He's not to be quarrelsome, but gentle, and that's especially the case when we're dealing with, with fathers in the church, when we're dealing with, with older men in the church. We're meant to sort of engage them, particularly when it comes to correction, with gentleness, right? So this is easy to understand, I hope, because I, I suspect that none of us have ever thought, maybe we have thought, but we then we thought better, of going home one day and just getting in our dad's face, right? And nobody thought, I'm going home, how come you ain't take the trash out today? You know, I need some new sneakers. You ain't bought me no sneakers in a long time. No, that's going to get your butt tanned, right? That's, that's going to get your hind parts toe up, right? We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't approach our fathers that way. Rather, we entreat them with gentleness, right? Now, notice what's happening in verse 2. So that's on the one hand, something not to do. Then it says what we are to do. And the verb here in this part of the verse just follows through the whole rest of the sentence. So instead, what we ought to do is to encourage or exhort him as you would a father. So here, older men are seen as people who need encouragement. We all need it, don't we? But I'm grateful for the wisdom of this verse because it might be the case that maybe you could talk about this over lunch or let me know if I'm wrong, send me an email or something. Um, it might be the case that the least encouraged demographic in society are men, older men. Right? I mean, think about it this way. It says, encourage them as you would a father. How many of you have even thought about those two things going together, father and encouragement. We want a father's encouragement, 
but I'm not sure we often think about how to give encouragement to fathers, right? Father's Day come, you get that little raggedy tie. <laughs> That's all we can get. Oh, the 1800th raggedy little tie that don't match nothing we got, you know. Y'all know that plain white shirt. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that go with the ugly tie because white go with everything, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Maybe we get a meal out of it somewhere. But we don't think about encouraging fathers the way we think about encouraging mothers, right? Mother's Day come, we go all out. And better not wait to Mother's Day either. Give her her flowers all year long, right? And so this is a place where I'm, I'm glad for the scripture sort of putting these things together because I think ordinarily we just kind of forget about older men. And, and older men, this is what the research tells us, as we get older, we get more isolated. We get more lonely, right? Um, we just hang out in our man cave. And so the church is calling us to make sure that, that it's a family where older men are encouraged and built up. And how do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you two suggestions from Scripture about how to encourage older men. First off, respect and honor them. Respect and honor them. I'm just taking, for example, an application of Exodus 20, verse 12, right? This is the, the law. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother, right? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So if we want to encourage the older men among us, we should honor them. We should respect them. Or the same ideas in Leviticus 19, verse 32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I like that first part. You shall stand up before the gray head. <laughs> and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. Now, notice what the text is doing there. A little bit of Hebrew parallelism, right? So we know what it is to fear God. We, we honor, we respect God, we love God the way children love their parents, right? A, a, a filial, a family respect. That's parallel with this idea of standing up before the gray head, honoring the face of the old man, right? So in, a, in not to the same degree or the same way, but just as we honor God, we're meant to honor older men in our congregation. We respect them. We give them their place of honor. Here's the second thing. We are to encourage an older man as a father by heeding their wisdom, by listening to and accepting and applying their wisdom. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 and 22. And you see this idea running all the way through the first nine chapters of Proverbs as, you know, the, the writer of the Proverbs keeps saying, my son, listen to me, and these things will happen in your life. But notice Proverbs 6, 20 to 22. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your hearts always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. So the writer of Proverbs is trying to help his younger son understand, if you listen to what I teach you, it will serve you. It will bless you. It will counsel you in your time of needs. And so older men are a gift in God's family to the rest of the church to, to, to sort of dispense to us wisdom and teaching and understanding that we might know how to walk in our day and grow in our day, right? So we need older men. They're at a life stage that all the rest of us are trying to get to. They done passed through all the little phases we're going through. They done learned some things. They done took some lumps. They've walked with God. And now all of that repository of knowledge, all of that treasure of wisdom is meant to be given to the people of God. And if we are wise, we will accept it. We will heed the instruction. We will heed the teaching. And we'll follow it. You remember we looked last week at, was it 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam? You know, he goes to the older men of the, of the, the elders of the, country says, what, how should I rule? And they instruct him and say, if you do this, it's going to go well. They'll love you and make you king forever. Goes back, talks with his boys, young cats his age. No, nah, man, don't do that. Don't do that. Do this, do this. He listens to the young folk. Goes disastrous for him, doesn't it? 
And so I just want to exhort us again, if we, if we count ourselves as young and we have friends and we always sort of talking about our lives with our friends and, you know, trying to get counsel with our friends, make sure you've got some older counsel in your life. And recognize that your friends, if they're your age, they're not any further along in life than you are. So what you're really doing is pooling your ignorance often. You know, you're gathering your guesses, right? It's like, well, you know, we guessing together. We, you know, okay, I'm going to do this. Well, man, you, you can't see to tomorrow. But the older man lives in your tomorrows. He lives in your future. He's traveled that path. So get yourself an older man, brothers. Get yourself an older man, sisters. Treat him as a father. Respect him. Honor him. Take his counsel. Okay? Now, it's a blessing when you can plant a church with older people involved. Often church planting feels like a young man's game, a young person's game. And that's, that, again, that's to the harm of everyone. So we've been blessed to have older persons as a part of our congregation, and, and we want to follow them. So I'm just going to say, um, based on 1 Timothy chapter 5, when Paul talks about the list of widows, he says, don't put a woman on the list of widows unless she's 60 or over. So I'm going to use 60 as a divinely inspired number for older man. Okay? So if you are over 60, let me just invite you to stand. Let me invite you to stand. If you're over 60 as a man in the congregation, praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Stay, stay standing, brother. Stay, stay standing. So these are our fathers. These are men we want to honor and respect as gray-haired or bald, right? Who, who's, whose wisdom we want to listen to. I was picking on the guy behind you. I realized it's a visitor with us. I went no shade. <laughs> I'm, I'm normally pretty shady, but I went throwing that at you. Uh, <laughs> these are people that God has put in our lives for us to receive instruction from. And we want to encourage them about their value and their worth and their place in God's family. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. We want to treat the older men as fathers. But notice the verse goes on to say, um, what does it say next? Younger men as brothers. Younger men as brothers. Now, I love this verse too. Now, notice, think about what position this puts the pastor in. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, treat the older men as fathers and the younger men as brothers, which means treat them like peers, treat them like siblings. So Timothy, as a pastor, is not in any relationship with anybody in the church where he's a superior. You see that? So as a pastor, I'm not, I'm not lording over any of you all. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be diminishing any of you because you're young. Now, remember what was just told to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth. But what? Set the believers an example. Now, how, how hypocritical would it be if Paul were to say to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, and Timothy then turn around to the young people and look down on them? No, he says, treat the younger men as brothers. Treat them as siblings. Regard them as equals in the family of God. Now, again, we come from different kinds of families, and, and maybe it's worth sort of thinking about how do we exhort, how do we encourage one another as brothers? I was nine years younger, at least nine years younger than my next sibling. My brothers were all older. Um, some of them, one or two of them, were old enough to perhaps have been my father, right? The one thing they were not doing was treat me like they're equal. Right. You know, from waking up in the morning, putting me in the headlock and, you know, mauling my head or, you know, trying to boss me around um, to, to rough and tumbling and fighting and those kinds of things. So, you know, sibling rivalries, we don't we don't sort of necessarily naturally sort of say, OK, let me treat you like we equals. Right. So in a lot of our natural families, that's just competition. But in the family of God, we're meant to put our arms around each other. Right more than putting our hands on a younger brother's head, like, you know, here, little fellow, stay right there. We meant to put our arms around each other, right? And more than trying to get away from our little siblings or our, our younger brothers in this case. Like my older brothers, if they were going to the court or something and I wanted to go before I was old enough to actually play, it's like, nah, you can't go with me, you're too little. You're always trying to go with me. Leave me alone, man. You, you know, you ain't my friend, you know? <laughs> okay, I'm... 
working out some things right now. <laughs> working out some stuff right now. We, we don't want to treat each other that way. We want to put the arm around one another and say, come with me. I was always so excited when one of my big brothers said, you want to ride with me? Didn't matter where he was going. I was running to the car, man. Jump in the car, sit on the hump seat in the back seat, man, and, and ride with my big brother. That was like the best thing in the world. Some of you folks don't know what hump seats are. Y'all got, got pilot seats in your cars now. But yeah, man, that's what we want in the church. That, that, that the pastors and the, the older men who, who aren't older men and say 60 and over, but the young 50-somethings, the young 40-somethings, we're not treating the 20-somethings like they're lesser. Right? We're treating them like siblings, like equals in the household of God. What does that look like? Well, let me encourage uh, maybe three things. Maybe three things. Number one, give younger men opportunity. Give them opportunity. Right? I, I don't know a young man unless life has taught him by beating him down not to have ambition. I don't know a young man who doesn't naturally have ambition. Who, who wants to sort of do something, who wants to make a contribution, who wants to achieve something. And, and, and most of us live in a world that just keeps telling us not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Or not you, not you, not you, not you. Well, let the church be the place where we look at younger brothers and say, yes, you. Come on, go ahead, get at it right? Take that opportunity. Take that risk. Step out in faith. We're your family. We're going to be there with you. Flower, flourish, step fully into the sort of callings that God has placed on your life as a young person, right? So I delight in the fact that we have the opportunity for young persons here to take the reins on ministry. Praise God, right? Because if the Lord gives me another 10 or 20 years, I ain't probably going to be here. The future of the church belongs to young people, right? And so we want young people involved in the life of the church as fully as possible in leadership opportunity, in service opportunity, in teaching opportunity, et cetera, right? We're meant to be uh, encouraged by that and receive them as brothers. Here's the second thing. Encourage not only opportunity, but encourage achievement and celebrate achievement. A young man graduates from high school. I love that the Matthews have had this ministry for years of uh, inviting the high school graduates, uh, boys and girls, uh, young men, young women, over to their home and inviting the church and their parents to come celebrate with him. It's an achievement. It's a milestone to mark that, that step into greater maturity and greater responsibility. We should celebrate the achievement of, of college graduation. We praise God for all the college students here from, from Howard, H-U. So we want. <laughs> so so we should be celebrating their graduate. What a wonderful thing to see! Um, let's just take the two Jalen young men from last year, graduated from Howard. One is off in a career in sports media, sports broadcasting with the Bleacher Report in Atlanta. You can celebrate with him at his his graduation, his family in town, and Jalen Williams is off in grad school in seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. Praise God. He still accepts Cash App and Venmo, right? He wants you to know that. I want to celebrate achievement and encourage that and rejoice with him in that way. And, and here's another thing. We want to encourage vulnerability and weakness. We want to encourage among our young men vulnerability and weakness because I think in youth, we're tempted toward delusions of immortality and invincibility, right? And sometimes as young people, if we've been bigging up ourselves and we didn't have some failure, it's devastating, especially if everybody else is pretending like they've never failed. They never struggled. They're not vulnerable in any way. And so we want to make this a place of opportunity and achievement and weakness and vulnerability and failure so that the whole human experience, right, is acceptable in the household of God. Right. And so we can encourage our younger men to say, hey, come alongside us. Come step up. Come step out. You know, we're going to be here to give opportunity. We're going to be here to celebrate achievement. And we're going to be here as your weaknesses and vulnerabilities, just like our own, get surfaced um, and, and you work your way through those things. And so we want to encourage younger men. Paul continues to go here. He, he again addresses the next uh, demographic in the group. That's older women. 
as mothers, exhort or encourage older women as mothers. And again, just culturally speaking, this is maybe a little bit more natural to us, right? We make Mother's Day big, we uh, mom's birthday, all, all kinds of things where we just really take note of mothers and celebrate mothers. And the, the tougher it, our mother's lives have been, the more we celebrate them sometimes, right? Um, so we, we've sort of arrived at a place in the culture where we've gone so far in celebrating the heroic single mother, or so far in celebrating the strong Black woman, for example, that those tags have now become a burden, a greater burden. So we don't, we don't allow for, in many cases, women to express vulnerability. They got to be the boss chick, right? They got to be calling shots and running things. Well, if you've had a good conversation with your moms about her life, and she felt like she could trust you enough to be honest with her life, She's probably told you about some hard things in her life. You weren't easy to raise. Your siblings were hard-headed. There were years of leanness in the family, as well as times of plenty. There was a lot of sacrifice. Hours worked, two jobs, hustling. So you could go to college or you could have that those basketball sneakers for the team or whatever the case might be. Here's the thing about moms. I mean, un unless you are particularly ungrateful, they don't like broadcast that stuff. They just do it. They get about it, right? And so, and so moms too, like older men, need encouragement. And so we want to encourage the older women here the way we would encourage mothers. Well, what does that look like? I think there's a great biblical illustration when we think about the relationship between Naomi and Ruth, right? So Naomi, this older Hebrew woman, uh, has moved away to Moab and uh, famine has struck. She's lost her husband. She has lost her sons. She is truly a widow in the biblical sense, right? No family to care for her. Comes back to Israel. And, and here's Ruth, this young Moabite woman. She's not Hebrew herself. She's not from Israel. Um, she's a foreigner. She's likely to be treated that way. But, but she says to Naomi, you know what? Where you go, I go. And your God will be my God. And she goes to the field and she gleans and she reaps and she works so mother-in-law can eat. And she listens to mother-in-law's counsel and, and she goes to Boaz. And, and before it's all over, she's married to Boaz and she's in the family tree of Jesus. And so that, that relationship is a beautiful relationship, a beautiful picture of, of what it may look like for us to treat our older women as mothers. They, too, are to be respected, honor your fathers and your mothers. And their wisdom, too, is to be uh, accepted and put into place. So turn with me, if you will, over to Titus chapter 2. There's just a couple pages to your right. Titus chapter 2, because Paul has given Titus there in Crete, um, very similar instructions that he's given to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And here he's addressing older men and older women, and he's talking about how to treat and how to pastor older women. Now notice, notice what he says in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, older women likewise, just like the men, it'll be those things, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now notice. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. Now, some of us come from church traditions where you have something called the mothers of the church. It's really the, the older, older saints in the church, normally dressed in white sitting off to the side like the mafia, man. You don't mess with him. Don't mess with him. You're going to get an offer you can't refuse, right? And the mothers of the church have this responsibility to, to really help care and shepherd the church. I think, though this, that's not a biblical office, I think that when you look at a passage like Titus chapter 2, the older women are actually given this kind of status and this kind of responsibility for the sort of um, holistic discipleship of the younger women. 
right? So he says, teach the older women to be reverent and self-controlled and all these things. Why? So that they would be able to teach the younger women how to be those things and in very practical ways, how to love their husbands. And husbands, we ain't always lovable. That takes some teaching. How to love their husbands, how to raise their children, how to care for their homes, how to walk in purity and all the things we see there in verses three to five. So older women, like older men, become this vital, indispensable part of God's family in the local church that we ought to really be honoring and celebrating and listening to. So now if you're here this morning and you would allow God to call you an older woman, if you're 60 and over, would you stand this morning? If you're an older woman, 60 and over? Let's go. Let's go. Amen. Amen. Just remain standing just a, a minute, just a minute longer. So, so these are our Titus two women. Now, now we've sort of um, fudged a little bit. We've allowed some women down to around 50 to also be in what we call our Titus two group. Our Titus two group are the older women that the pastors um, before the pandemic met with monthly to disciple to teach them uh, theology, to teach them practical ministry, and to encourage them in their own walk with the Lord, that they might, just as we obey Titus 2 here, turn out and disciple the older women. Now, if you were a part of that Titus 2 group and you're a little, little younger than 60, I invite you to stand as well. So any others in here who were a part of the Titus 2 group? Amen. So ladies, I, I want you in particular, and the brothers too, I want you in particular to take a snapshot of these faces. These are our mothers in the church who are meant to help us to learn how to follow the Lord, how to, how to lead and care for our families and to bear witness to Christ. You see there in verse five, so that the word of God is not slandered. These women's lives adorn the word of God. It beautifies the word of God. Uh, and, and they are here by God's design to help you as younger women and you as younger men to do the same. Now, I'm saying younger men too, because, you know, we need mothers as well as fathers, right? And, and brothers, sometimes the conversation you need to have is not with a pastor, but with an older woman, right? Who, who can give you wisdom and seasoned advice. Uh, and so we want to celebrate uh, the older women in the church and, and to encourage them in their ministry and encourage them in their walk as mothers, to build them up uh, in every way that God gives us opportunity. Amen? Amen. We give God praise for him. And finally, the younger sisters, last but certainly not least. Notice what Timothy says here. He says to the pastors, he says to the church, that they are to exhort uh, or encourage younger women as sisters. Then he has this qualification, in all purity, right? So Paul now looks at the younger women of the church and says, just like the younger men, these are your siblings, these are your, these are your sisters, these are your equals. Um, you are to regard them as sisters. And then he brings forward this idea that probably is natural to most of us when we think about our biological sisters, if we have them. Um, but he brings forward and makes it explicit in the household of God that we're to treat our sisters with absolute purity, Right. There, the connotation is that the way in which we treat our sisters should be free of any kind of sexual immorality or sexual innuendo or sexual mistreatment. When we think about our biological sisters, we don't think about them in that way. Just a suggestion makes something turn in our stomach, right? Like, right? Because that's our sister. And so it should be in the church that, spiritually speaking, these are our sisters, and the way we regard them should be clean should be pure, should be holy. And we are to encourage in them in that way. Well, well how, do we, how do we do this? Well, let me give you just a few thoughts and then we'll, we'll wrap up for this morning. How we could treat younger women as sisters uh, with absolute purity. Number one, brothers and sisters, never tell coarse jokes. Never tell coarse jokes. Ephesians 4.29, Ephesians 5.4, both are texts that that teach us that that's just not fitting for God's people. You know, joking around about someone's body or joking around about sex or, you know, even being a little bit fuzzy about what you mean about those things, put that to death, right? Put that to death. 
I, I went and saw um, with Christy. We went and saw the movie um, The Woman King. I'll save my review for it another time. I'm going to tell you the first thing that struck me about that movie as it opens and it, it gives us a little bit of the story about um, the, those women in Dahomey. Um, and it says it was, a, it was a during a time that was really rough for women and girls. You remember that? And then it sort of goes through that a little bit. We see the young girl and the mistreatment she's getting from her, as it turned out, kind of adoptive dad trying to marry her off for his own advantage. And, and she's, she goes into this, this sorority, really. And they live in this compound where men can't come, right? And I sat there sad because it, it just dawns on me that there's really aren't safe places for women to just be themselves without fear of the intrusion and the mistreatment of men. And brothers, we don't think about this much, but because we don't, in our bodies, we don't walk around feeling fragile because people are looking at us and commenting on us and, and maybe even threatening us if we don't respond to their, their sort of sinful advances the way they want, right? We, we don't experience that, but our sisters inhabit bodies, right? That, that draw attention from sinful men that they don't want that creates a, a, a fragility and an uncertainty and a constant cautiousness that um, is a tax that comes with being women. They shouldn't feel that way in the household of God, beloved. They shouldn't, right? So we want to so regard our sisters and so encourage and treat our sisters that like those women in that compound, in that movie, playing and having a good time and free of those things, that they experience increasing measure of that in the household of God. So put away coarse joking, put away uh, all that kind of talk. Don't, don't, it's not fitting for God's people. Number two, then I'm speaking, especially to brothers here, bring every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, right? That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Preach to yourself, insist to ourselves, that's my sister in the Lord. Would I do or think that regarding my biological sister? How can I think that with my spiritual sister who shares my blood in Christ? Right? Remember Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is loving, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When we think about women, we should be thinking about things that are praiseworthy and excellent not things that are tawdry and worldly and fallen. That's, that applies to our sisters in the church. That's, that, that applies to how we watch women in entertainment and what kind of entertainment we watch, right? We, we want to apply God's word to how we look at women wherever they are so that with us, the household of God, they experience safety. Number three. Never then put yourself or put others in compromising positions. Romans 13, 13 and 14, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Right? So here's a place where we just have to be honestly, ruthlessly honest with ourselves. We are all human and we all experience temptations. Right, and we all we all sort of know where those temptations are most likely to be aroused, and what things make us most vulnerable to giving in to those temptations. Do not do those things. Do not do those things. Do not go to those places. Right. Do, do not make yourself vulnerable in that way. Right. And and brothers, let me let me say one thing further about these last two applications about bringing every thought captive to Christ and um, sort of refusing compromising positions. Let 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 me say. This is our responsibility. We don't shift this over onto our sisters, right? So, so our sisters may make a clothing choice. We, we don't get to excuse our lustful thoughts because they made that clothing choice. It's our responsibility to put the lustful thought to death, whatever she may be wearing, right? That's just a, as an illustration. And, um, and, and when it comes to where we go and not being in compromising positions, we don't, don't shift this over as a burden for her to bear, own this as a son of God, 
Onus, as one who, as my brother quoted earlier, is pursuing righteousness, right? Onus, as men who, when we are called to be married or are married, must give our lives for our wives the way Christ gave his life for the church. Sacrifice belongs to us. The responsibility here belongs to us. They've got their own discipleship responsibility. The older women will teach them about modesty and self-control and all those good things, but we got to do our work, brothers, and stop sort of shifting the burden. Number four, and I'm done. Protect her reputation. Protect her reputation. Never tell coarse jokes. Bring every thought captive. Don't put yourself in compromising positions. Number four, if you're dating a young sister in the church or an older sister in the church, you're dating a sister in the church. Uh, see, the ageism, right? I'm sorry. If you're dating a sister in the church um, or if you're around and, and folks are discussing their siblings in the church, we have a responsibility to honor each other, to, to regard each other as better than ourselves, Right? And to speak of each other in ways that commend, in ways that recommend, rather than in ways that tear down, in ways that exploit, right? And so let us be protective of our sisters in physical ways. Let us be protective of them in spiritual ways. Let us be protective of them uh, in, in social ways in, 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 with regard to their, their reputations, right? Um, if chivalry ain't dead, it almost is, all right? And, and we live in a culture, again, that exploits and, and, and rejoices in exploitation of women. We live in a culture that's so confusing that women exploit themselves and call it power. Right? But in the household of God, these things ought not be so. We want to treat our sisters with absolute purity as God gives us grace. So we're family, older and younger, male and female, adopted in the household of God. And we want to live in an honorable way with each other that we might experience the safety and the growth and the encouragement that God means us to experience. And he does mean us to experience that. And following him, is for our joy, not, not a burden, but for our joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done in creating the church, Lord. We thank you that you decided that the church would not be a business or a nonprofit organization, that the church would not be some other kind of, of charitable organization, but it would be a family, that it would be your family. And that's what we are. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more to be family, that you give us grace more and more to treat each other the way you have told us to in these two verses, that our older men and women would be honored and respected and listened to and, and valued. And younger men and women would be uh, treated as equals and, and given opportunity and protected and encouraged with, with purity, that we might, Lord, abound in holiness and in good works, and um, that your name might be great and, and your family might be a place of safety, Lord. So help us, Lord, to do these things um, for your glory. Help us to do these things by your grace. Help us to do these things in the joy that comes from obedience to your word. Fill us with your spirit that we might be empowered. And Lord, let us go from this place and bear the good news. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.